Welcome to the Life in Deep Ellum podcast, exploring the sacred in art, music, faith, and community. away from greed, fear, and violence to generosity, trust, and peacemaking. It sounds like good news. Today we're continuing our series called Good News, Rediscovering God's Vision. We've been exploring what the good news of Jesus Christ really means for the world. And we've been doing that by exploring the words of the prophet Isaiah in the Hebrew Bible or Old Testament in Isaiah 61. These words took on a new meaning when another prophet we know uttered them, but this prophet named Jesus was more than a prophet. He, you see, was beginning to fulfill this prophecy. The vision of God, he was making it a reality with his actions. The fourth chapter of Luke describes this moment when Jesus enters his hometown synagogue and begins to read from these ancient scrolls. Suddenly, this old prophecy is becoming new. It's becoming possible through the word made flesh. Word made flesh. Suddenly, God's vision for the world was living and breathing, walking and teaching, healing, weeping and praying, and it was good news. But you know how us humans handle good news. At first, Luke tells us that the people were enamored by Jesus and his knowledge of Scripture. They knew that the words of Isaiah hit different when Jesus spoke them, but they didn't fully get it. When Jesus challenges them to live out this vision of God, they get so angry and they want to hurl him off a cliff. This is his hometown church, y'all, his hometown synagogue. And these are usually the extremes of how people respond to Jesus. Either kind of a shallow, eager, fangirling response or furious enough to throw him off a cliff. But here at Life in Deep Ellum, in this faith community, we're interested in another option. We want to follow Jesus. We seek a faith that's not shallow or motivated by selfish gain. We seek to follow this Jesus who continues to share good news with the world. Last week, Bryson told us that the word gospel is mostly known as a noun, share the gospel. That's kind of how we've always heard it. But he told us that actually in scripture, the noun gospel is also used as a verb. And so he taught us this word gospeling or good newsing, since the gospel means good news. Gospeling might sound like a funny word, but it challenges us to see the gospel as more than a story to hear in our ears, but a story to live out in our words and actions and deeds. 
Today, we're going to focus on the second verse of Isaiah 61, because as I said, we're going through Isaiah 61 as this biblical vision for the world. The Spirit of the Lord is, a, is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. That was our first week series. Last week, Bryson walked us through, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. And verse, this verse for this week, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. The day of, the, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, yes, sounds awesome, and the day of vengeance of our God. <laughs> that sounds like Isaiah's intrusive thoughts may have got the best of him. Um, we can, interestingly, Luke tells us that Jesus leaves out the day of vengeance when he recaps Isaiah in the, in the hometown synagogue. Now, he may have regretted that after they threw him out. <laughs> he may have wanted to call for a day of vengeance. Seriously, though, our understanding of God in light of Jesus hinges less on a day of vengeance and more on compassion, of course. However, we can probably understand why an oppressed minority experiencing captivity would be interested in vengeance. Mercy and grace never make much sense. Jesus does, however, include the first part of that verse in his scene in the synagogue in Luke chapter 4. He says, he reads the, the, the words of the scroll and he says, I have been sent to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So you may be wondering, what the heck is the year of the Lord's favor? <laughs> Stay with me. This is a reference to the Jubilee year described in the book of Leviticus. This was part of the word of God delivered to Moses on Mount Sinai. And in the 25th chapter of Leviticus, Moses receives instructions, a vision on, from God on how the Israelites should, should celebrate the year of Jubilee. Now what happens in this year of Jubilee, you might ask? It's a year in which debts are forgiven. The land lies fallow to rest from production. And you can't cheat your neighbor to make money off of them. Slaves and indentured servants are set free. Loans are interest-free. And if someone falls into difficulty in your circle of influence, you should support them. Yes, y'all, this is biblical. <laughs> As verse 17 of Leviticus 25 puts it, you shall not cheat one another, but you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. It's the year of the Lord's favor, not the master's favor or the landlord's favor or the ruler's favor. Walter Brueggemann, who we heard today, and he's, he's kind of a, um, he can be kind of a grumpy old man, but I love him. He's an Old Testament scholar and uh, he, has an, he has a prophetic idea, and he wants to kind of recapture this, this biblical vision of um, economic flourishing for all. And he says this about Jubilee. He says, the news from Moses and the Torah is that the God of covenantal emancipation 
does not intend debilitating or immobilizing servitude. The God of covenantal emancipation intends that economic life be ordered to preclude such ways of bondage. It is this claim for the God of covenantal emancipation that sets in motion the Exodus narrative, the mandates of Sinai, the prophetic insistence on an alternative. Remember, this is the God who lets people go, who sets the captive free in the book of Exodus. This is Jubilee. This is the alternative. This is good news. Now, you might think, okay, what an idealistic notion from days gone by, but that's not how our world works anymore. That vision is not realistic. How could it make a difference? Lest you think that the Bible has no significance or power, think again, because it is an influence. Frederick Douglass, you know that name, Frederick Douglass was a devout follower of Jesus who came to faith in God while still in captivity as a slave in the American South. He taught himself to read on a plantation. He read the New Testament and learned about a Jesus who was anointed to bring good news to the poor and to set the captives free. And that message meant something different to him in his context than it might mean to you or me. He credits the gospel as his motivation for working for the end of slavery. He was able to disentangle his faith in Jesus from the dominant Christianity that justified his oppression because he knew a different Jesus that wanted to see him free and flourishing. He says this, I love the religion of Christianity, which is pure, peaceable, gentle, easy to be entreated, full of good fruits and without hypocrisy. There is another religion than the pro-slavery religion. It is that which takes off fetters instead of binding them on, that breaks every yoke, that lifts up the bowed down. The anti-slavery platform, he says, is based on this kind of religion. Jubilee, freedom, the liberating love and salvation of Jesus. This was the good news that somehow allowed Frederick Douglass to not give up on the hope of emancipation in our country. And so this notion of biblical jubilee became a rallying cry, a foundational principle for American abolitionists. And it came right from the Bible, from the book of Leviticus. Jubilee could be found in speeches and inside anti-slavery papers. Scholar Bennett Parton says that jubilee encased the abolitions movement movement's faith in moral progress. You see, having this vision for an alternative led to faith that change was possible. God's vision for the world includes freedom. Yes, spiritual freedom from sin, but also earthly freedom from physical and economic bondage. 
God dreams of an alternative where no human is used for profit alone. So what does Jubilee look like here and now? Deep Elam, you see, was a place to find refuge after the Jubilee of Emancipation. As a freedman's town, emancipated slaves found community and possibility here on these streets in our, in our neighborhood. And believe it or not, the historic Knights of Pythias building on Elm Street was once a place where black businesses and economic life thrived. It was designed by a black architect in the early 1900s, and by 1916, it was filled with physicians, pharmacists, and a barber shop. Businesses continued to thrive, and the 1920s saw the rise of the blues and gospel that, that we know our neighborhood is known for. And since then, there's been some decline in efforts at revitalization. The development of the suburbs led business away from Deep Ellum. And increased use of cars meant less street pedestrian traffic, which these businesses depended on for bustling economic activity. But the Jubilee of Jesus continues. Just like in 2006 when life in Deep Elam decided that there would still be life in Deep Elam if God had something to do with it, we continue to be part of this new script, this new story of flourishing for all God's children. We get to, when, when we hear our neighborhood defined by fear, greed, or violence, we get to change the conversation to generosity, trust, and peacemaking. When people criticize Deep Elm and say, why would you go down there? We say, no, there's actually a story of unfolding freedom there that's happened for a long time now. And it's a story that we want to be part of. And I wonder what a true jubilee would look like in Deep Ellum. Would it look like affordable housing? Would it look like affordable rent for business owners so they don't have to close their doors because of rising rent costs? Would it look like business owners being able to own the places they run businesses from? We don't know exactly what it will look like, but we know that Jubilee means that a place like Deep Ellum begins to thrive in ways that benefit everyone, not just a handful of wealthy investors. Deep Ellum still needs Jubilee. It still needs a change in the conversation because so often Deep Ellum is defined by crime. But what's interesting is when a mass shooting happens in the suburbs, it's just written off as one case of an evil person. That neighborhood doesn't become defined by that act. But if there's a fist fight in the middle of the street on a Sunday afternoon, everyone says, oh, that's just Deep Ellum, and that's how Deep Ellum will always be. This, friends, is where the body of Christ and the hope of Jesus changes the conversation and says, no, God is present in Deep Elam. God is present in each one of us. 
and you aren't getting the full picture. It is so exciting to me that we get to be part of this jubilee, this good news. And I think that if Jesus was in Deep Elm today doing his gospeling thing, he would break bread at Chiba Hut. And he would patiently listen to the wild stories of the bartenders. He would pick up trash in the alleys. And he would sit and heal those who were sick and living alone. He would forgive the person that puts graffiti on our building every month, which I find especially admirable (laughs) after seeing the buckets of paint and labor that we spend money on each month to paint over the graffiti. But Jesus would forgive them. And he might even convince city leaders that there are bigger priorities than finding churches for graffiti. And I think Jesus would break up the fist fights. I think Jesus would bring peace and wholeness and mercy and compassion. You see, we can imagine what Jesus would do if he were here in the flesh But we can also remember that the spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, is still very much alive. I remember when I was first here and I had a challenging day. And it was a hard hard day with with someone that that lives outside and an an encounter that I had. And and someone um, told me here, um, they said, you know what, Jenna? you're gonna see a lot here because people really need Jesus. And I agree with him. But sometimes as Christians, we can say that some people need Jesus and other people don't need Jesus. And there can be kind of a a condescension about that. Because you see, when you begin to follow Jesus, Even when you're baptized, even when you you dedicate your life to Jesus, you don't automatically hop into a category of doesn't need Jesus anymore. We all need Jesus. We all need someone to love us unconditionally, to love us stubbornly. We all need to repent for the ways that we have not done God's will in the world. And we all need to be forgiven. Some of us don't need Jesus more than others. Deep Elm doesn't need Jesus more than any other neighborhood needs Jesus. And in fact, I think that the gospels show us that it's, it's the outsiders and the marginalized that Jesus ends up hanging out with the most. So if anything We can follow the spirit of Christ in our neighborhood. We can practice jubilee. We can, it's a a small thing, but we can tip our servers well. We can practice subversive ways of valuing people, not for how much money they have or whether they rent or own, but because they are created in the image of God and they deserve dignity, and respect. This is good news. 
This is gospel. We are changed in important ways. So where, where will we follow Jesus? Where will we follow where he leads? It may be an adventure. It may be uncomfortable. But it's worth it. It's worth it to follow the one who redeems us. Because in the presence of Jesus, we are made whole. Our debts, our mistakes, our past actions don't define us anymore. And it's this type of mercy and compassion that God dreams of. Forgiveness. Forgiving of debts. We pray that when we say the Lord's Prayer. What if those debts are forgiven? We're going to sing our last song together. And I, it's my hope and my prayer that this series is, is allowing you to see the fullness of the gospel. That the gospel is action and prayer. That it's spiritual and material. That it changes our lives and it changes our neighborhoods. That God has a vision for the world. And it's up to us to care about what God cares about. This Jesus, this jubilee, this mercy, this peace that passes understanding, this forgiveness that we didn't earn and we can't have taken from us. This gift of grace, how will it change us? How will we practice it? What dreams could we dream? What freedom is possible? What would a neighborhood really look like if God's vision was the foundation? Let's follow the spirit of Jesus.